HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins. I work for Fairway Markets in the New York area. And we're awfully proud to support Heritage Radio. And we care so much about everything that goes on out here at Roberta's and their studio because they talk to people who are, are serious about food and that's what we are at Fairway is we're serious about food. We we just care very deeply about about you as a as a customer and how you cook and what you cook with and how you entertain and and that's why we love to support Heritage Radio because it, it it's pretty much the same thing. It's wanting to to find happiness through serious food and people who are serious about it and and care about learning everything there is to learn about it. And that's that's we're kindred spirits. If it's something worth having in your kitchen, you're going to find it at, at Fairway. And if there's somebody worth talking to about food, you're going to find them on Heritage Radio, and we will be supporting you guys for a long, long time. At Fairway, I'm your personal grocer, Steve Jenkins, Fairway Market. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host here on Radio, on Heritage Radio Network. And my theme music uh, never really came into play quite as importantly, perhaps, as it does today. That's the theme of the Queen Sheba arriving at the Court of Solomon. And history and folklore has it that she arrived with gifts of spices. I'm sure she arrived with a lot more than that for Solomon, but that's another story I digress. Um, and in culinary history, there's probably no, and they're not probably, there is no other single subject that is more important, uh, more widespreading, and has more um, concern with civilizations and the development of them than spices. And today I have with me Michael Crandall, a former chef and teacher and artist, and author, author of uh, several different articles in the Oxford Encyclopedia of Food and Drink in America and The Great Little Pumpkin Book, and most, well, not most recently, several, about three years ago, right, Michael? The Conquest of Taste, The Rise and Fall of Three Great Cities of Spice. And Michael's here today to talk with us about 
about spices and their importance in not only culinary history, but the history of the world. And um, everyone has heard the terms bandied about the spice route, the spice trade, perhaps not really knowing um, the importance of that in the development of civilizations or establishment of civilizations. And certainly everyone uses spices without even thinking a whole lot about them. Um, I know that in the uh, the publicity blurb for Michael's book, the uh, publishers said, the smell of sweet cinnamon on your morning oatmeal, the gentle heat of gingerbread, the sharp, piquant bite of your everyday peppermill. You know, these are things we take for granted. And wow, it wasn't always that way. So welcome, Michael. And I'm, I'm anxious to learn uh, a lot about the spice trade and and development of cities and dispel some of the myths that people have out there about spices. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Linda. Um, first of all, some of the myths. I guess we should get those out of the way right away, dispel some of those. A lot of people think that um, spices came for what reasons? Well, there's been a – as with many foods, there's lots of um, there's lots of myths that kind of circle around them. With spices, the most – continuous myth and uh, even sort of famous historians make this mistake and make it over and over and over again you just can't get rid of it is that spices were imported into Europe in order to disguise the taste of rotten meat or that they were used to preserve the meat Um, A, they were not imported to disguise the taste of rotten meat because the only people who could afford them could afford good meat and if you look at cookbooks from the 14th, 15th century they tell you if you have rotten meat, you do with it exactly what you would do today, which is to throw it out. And yes, maybe the peasants would pick up the semi-rotten meat and perhaps cook it and perhaps have some, you know, miserable um, haunch of venison that was semi-putrid. But they wouldn't have the money um, to be pouring spices on it. As far as spices as a preservative, spices aren't a very good preservative. All right. um, the chemicals that are in most spices are next to useless in preserving meat or fish or what have you. What's really, really efficient at preserving those things is salt. And salt is cheap. So if you were preserving food, particularly meats and fish in the Middle Ages, use salt. You wouldn't be using pepper. A, it wouldn't work. And B, well, salt was cheap, relatively speaking. Well, of course, salt. That's a whole other topic. That too, is a whole other topic. Right? That was taxed. An important they, one. They, they, yeah, they knew the importance of that. And, sure. and tax was, and salt was taxed. Um the the countries i mean certainly we you know spices came into um we know came into uh europe in in the middle ages well in renaissance time particularly but there was this influx through the middle ages and we hear of the cinnamon roots and the clove roots what as in terms of which spices were um the important ones first that were traded that really um set up the most demand can you can you go there well this this is such a huge subject that when I wrote A Taste of Conquest, I specifically focused in on three cities because it was just so overwhelming. But to give you the very, very quick version of it, spices, most spices that were imported into Europe in the Middle Ages were grown either in India or were grown in what is now Indonesia. And they got by sea to the Middle East, typically in the Middle Ages, and then were transferred typically through Arab middlemen to Europeans who then mark them up, mark them up, mark them up, so that you would, you know, spend, let's say, a dollar a pound for pepper in India. And by the time it got to England, it was maybe 
$22 or $26, with middlemen <laughs> picking up money along the way. And the great thing about Pepper, and this was sort of one of these funny revelations I had, was Pepper was by far the most commonly traded spice. And the reason that the Portuguese eventually figured out a way of getting around Africa to get to India, because they figured out, well, if we pay a dollar in India, and we can sell it for $22 in um, in England, that's a lot of money to be made. And so eventually they figured out how to do that, and the world was transformed. But the reason that pepper was so critical, and I was um, I was in India researching this article, and I was in a pepper grower's, um, what would you call it, plantation. Mm-hmm. And he took me out back and showed me this shed, this big corrugated iron, you know, garden shed. And in it were bags and bags and bags of pepper. And now pepper wasn't his primary business. His primary business was rubber. He grew the pepper as a kind of sideline. And I asked him, well, what do you do with all this pepper? And he says, oh, well, you know, we save it for kind of a rainy day. Um, He had three daughters, and he was in some ways saving it for when um, they got married for their dowry. It seemed like but they were like six, you know. (laughs) And so I thought, well, it's all going to spoil, isn't it? And he says, no, 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 pepper's fine. You just kind of rinse it off and, you know, the mold comes off and you can sell it just as good 10 years down the line. And it turns out that the reason that pepper was so huge, has such a huge influence on the way the world developed was because it doesn't spoil. Hmm. It's light, unlike gold or gems. It's relatively cheap at one end and expensive at the other end. And you can store it for 10 years. Your McCormick pepper that you're buying, um, probably 10 years old. And it's probably okay. Yeah. Well, interesting in that. So I guess cloves and and cinnamon kind of follow right there because it's the same deal with them. But, you know, it's interesting because uh, you talked about India and and Indonesia. Um, Egypt, they had one of the gates in Alexandria during Alexander the Great's reign. It was called the Pepper Gate. I mean, it was because it was such an important port of... Of import for uh, for pepper well, and for well, spices. Right? One of the things that's interesting when you go to India is that the archaeology museums are full of Roman amphorae mm. because they would send oil and they would send, I guess, wine. I'm not sure about that. But they would definitely sell all this stuff to sell in southern India, and they sent mostly pepper back. Pepper back. Huh. Rice, too, apparently. I just recently learned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's interesting because you mentioned Indonesia, and I think it, Charles Crane wrote in his... Um, what is it, the sense of Eden? That's right. Yeah, and he he said whoever well, it, the the phrase went in history that whoever rules Malacca, being Malaysia, mm-hmm. rules the world. It was a bit of overstatement, but <laughs> <laughs> as it often is. But sure, the reason that um, the Spanish and the Portuguese at one point this is to go back, but basically at one point the Spanish and the Portuguese divided up the world. Um, Spain had one half of the world, and the Portuguese had the other half of the world. And this was given to the Pope to decide, the Pope who happened to be Spanish, so he kind of erred on the side of the Spanish. Anyways, the main reason that they were fighting about the world was because they weren't quite sure which half the Spice Islands fell into. Hmm. And, of course, the Spanish wanted the Spice Islands, and the Portuguese wanted the Spice Islands. And the reason that Magellan, remember Magellan went around the world, first guy to go around the world, um, he was a Portuguese guy working for the Spanish and he was trying to figure out exactly where, you know, these spice islands were. And by going around the world, he could identify the spot. Of course, he died along the way, but be that as it may. Um, the Spanish never got them in the end. 
The Portuguese didn't get them in the end. Who got them in the end were the Dutch, of all people. Because the Dutch, who were... Um, super colonists. And, and sort of the super capitalists of the right. 17th century. Uh, the Portuguese had established colonies in all these islands. Um, or trading posts is a better term for it. Uh, the Dutch come in. And the Dutch have absolutely no compunction. You know, they move in. They slaughter everybody. Um, take over and bring in slaves from Africa and other places to run these um, uh, mostly nutmeg plantations. They never mm-hmm. quite managed to control the um, the uh, the clove trade, but they totally, totally got a monopoly on the nutmeg, nutmeg trade. Allspice. And one of the things that happened, and this is one of those, another one of those kind of confusions and people who study culinary history argue about this, but one of the things that seems to happen in the, 17th century is that whereas Europeans have been using lots of spices or at least Europeans who could afford them had been using lots of spices in the 14th, 15th, 16th, 16th century. In the 17th century, the French, they stopped using spices, um, not completely and not overnight, but gradually somewhere in the 17th century, a kind of a medieval cuisine, which was characterized mostly by lots of spices, mostly the sweet spices mm. and sugar, lots of sugar too. Um, turns into something we might recognize as French food today instead of what we'd probably recognize as Moroccan food. If you look at medieval European food, it tastes a lot like Moroccan food. Mm -hmm. So in the 17th century, the French sort of stop using huge amounts of spices. They use, you know, a little bit of cloves, a little bit of nutmeg in their pâtés, but small amounts. Um, It is at this time that the Dutch have a virtual monopoly on uh, cloves, nutmeg, and cinnamon. The Dutch, it so happens, um, are the enemies of the French. And at the same time, the French have this new system whereby they think that exporting any gold is, uh, you know, will lead to the destruction of their economic system. Hmm. So um, they seem to begin to not exactly boycott, but sort of discourage the use of these foreign spices and encourage the use of local stuff. Lemons from the south of France, truffles, uh, mushrooms. And herbs. Herbs came into being. And herbs. And herbs. So So it was really economic and, and, uh, and, you can say, uh, uh, nationalistic, nationalistic, right? Nationalistic. War, warlord, yeah, you know, you know, chauvinistic. I mean, yeah. it was the French who invented that term uh, to be chauvinistic, right. and um, and the other thing that the Dutch did was they cranked up the price, so that spices, which had been getting cheaper and cheaper, all of a sudden like sh- doubled in price, so that there was lots of disincentive in France. There was some references in, in some. <laughs> Oh, I don't know, pieces about people having to take out a mortgage but to buy pepper. I mean, it right, was right. so expensive. Well, right. There's a little bit of hyperbole there. Probably. But, <laughs> right. Uh, it's, I mean, it's it's fascinating. Well, Ven- talk about Ven- Venice. Venice w- was a big player in this early on. Yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't? Venice yeah. is one of these wonderful places. Venice, Genoa, the big ports. Right, um, right, yeah. right, right. I mean, it's so funny because you go to Venice now and it's all this kind of basically Disneyland, right? I mean, it's beautiful. It's pretty. It's full of tourists. There's no economy except for tourism. Um, and you forget that Venice was one of the most important financial centers of the world. It right. was, you know, New York, Hong Kong, and Shanghai rolled into one in its day. And what first put it on the map was salt. They tra- traded salt back and forth, back and forth, made lots of money. Then they realized that there was a lot more money to be made in pepper. And so they slowly took over the entire pepper trade in the Mediterranean, not only taking pepper from the Arabs to the 
Christians, but also transferring sometimes pepper from one Arab group to another Arab group. Mm -hmm. There were constantly, the Pope was, you know, went ballistic at this because they were trading with the infidels. And every so often they were, you know, censored. They were, uh, there was a lot of disagreement about the whole thing. Well, I mean, it was almost like regattas and, and races to find, as you mentioned before, the most direct routes to get these too. I mean, a lot of money was from different countries was pumped into exploration, if you will. We had the, we had it, the it, space it, race, you know, years ago here, but in, then it was, it was finding, you know, it was all, they were all sea routes that, that these um, spices were right, shipped that, through. Right. That happened a little bit later. What happened is that um, one of the fun things about traveling to these places I write about is that you kind of get the smell of them. Mm-hmm. And I was standing on the seaport um, in Lisbon. Lisbon is on this big estuary, the Teju River, and they built the 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 kings built the castle right on right on the um, the waterfront, and they used to have the shipyard on one side and the trading area on the other side, and the Venetians and it was at that point pretty well just the Venetians would fill up these big boats these big uh, galleys with pepper and they would essentially fill it up kind of like you do with oil you just sort of pump the stuff in you seal the top off. But it would smell. It would be very, very aromatic. I and mean, we imagine thousands and thousands of pounds, a million pounds sometimes, of pepper filling these places. And they would go to restock, to refill, to get water, you name it, food and so on, in Lisbon. They would sail right past the king's palace. Hmm. And it's physically right. They would have had to sail right past the king's palace. They would have unloaded a little bit of stuff. But then they would go on to England. And, you know, the... Kings of um, Portugal would be sprinkling these spices on their food and thinking every time it passed, it's like, there goes a million dollars, mm-hmm. there goes a million dollars, there goes a million dollars. <laughs> Put the toll gates up. <laughs> Put the toll gates up. And eventually they thought, well, maybe we could, you know, get a cut of these not very religious types anyway, you know, these uh, sort of crass businessmen who were coming in from Italy. Right. Well, I mean, it's, and, you know, the, the Arab and, and African uh, nations that they were getting all these spices from. You can see coming back in the architecture. I mean, there's so much Moorish influence in in Venice still. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. The, uh, you know, what what remained from... There is, and there's, there's weirder sort of remains, which is that if you go to Lisbon and if you go to um, Amsterdam or, you know, if you go to the Netherlands these days, there's all this blue and white uh, tile, right? Blue right. and white tile yeah. everywhere. Doft, yeah. Where they got that blue and white ta- uh, palette is from China. Mm-hmm. And where did they pick it up? Not in China. They picked it up in India Mm. because it was used as ballast. When they were bringing the ships back to Europe, pepper is very, very light. And if you fill up a ship with pepper, the thing would tip over. Hmm. So you need to fill the bottom with ballast. And, of course, they could use sand or rocks. But it so happened that there was just as much, if not more, trade with China from India than there was with Europe. And what were they trading? They were trading, you know, China. Uh, they were drinking porcelain. <laughs> porcelain, right. Um, so you had all of this porcelain arriving as a kind of a side benefit, as a, you know, a little extra in these ships, in the bottoms of these ships, as ballast. And so oddly enough, the Portuguese and the Dutch are really the only countries in Europe who have this blue and white uh, pottery, hmm. which is Chinese right. originally, but it's there because they were trading from India. Right. And considered Dutch. Well, so we're going to take a short break and come back with Michael Crandall to find out more interesting facts on how spice played a major role. 
And we are back talking about spices and history with Michael Crandall, the author of The Conquest of Taste. And, you know, it's it's interesting because uh, we, I was talking earlier about how um, it, spices are the single most um, important topic in culinary history. And this book is, it's a good popular read. I know that, you know, some... Some historians will say, well, gee, you didn't trace this or that, and you didn't, you know, didn't have all the footnotes of different, oh, The Taste of Conquest. I'm sorry, The Conquest. I, the Taste of Conquest. I just got corrected. The book is The Taste of Conquest. Um, it, is, it is a good popular read. Spice is such a huge topic for any one person to undertake and, and try to write you know, a history of. As we've been talking, it covers so many countries, so many ages, and I think you give a really good, interesting, a, a good picture, a good, you know, well-rounded picture of the spice trade and, and how it developed. And uh, and now you want to talk about religion? What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, just another little topic here. <laughs> well, you asked me what I wanted to talk about. Religion. You know, religion always enters into everything. Oh, and yeah. of course, we're not. Wait, about... are we talking about a religion or politics? <laughs> <What are> we... <laughs> I think sex, religion, and politics, yeah. they all enter somehow into the spice trade as well. No, but one of the interesting things was that when the Portuguese took over, in essence, it, you can see the whole thing as a relay race. Um, in Europe, first of all, the... Uh, the Venetians controlled the spice trade. Then pretty well the Portuguese controlled the spice trade. And then pretty well the Dutch did. But the the Portuguese were, they were part of this group like the Spanish of conquistadors. So they saw themselves as reconquering, you know, Iberia, Portugal, Spain, um, for Christianity and driving out the infidels. And... When you stop to think about it, when the Spanish went to the New World, they kept this sort of idea going. But the Portuguese did as well. And they first went down the coast of um, uh, the coast of Africa. And every time they were going, they were claiming, and they probably meant it partially, that they were going, you know, to discover the new Christian kingdom to somehow defeat the Moors, defeat the Muslims. And when... They got into the pepper trade. One of the problems for a king in those days was that kings were not supposed to be active in any sort of business. Business was a lowly occupation. And it was particularly a lowly occupation there. I mean, you could be a soldier if you were a noble. You could be, you know, a king. You could be a scholar. You could be even go um, into religion. But you definitely were not able to trade. You could impose taxes on your business. You could impose taxes, (laughs) but you weren't allowed to trade. And so they had to jump through all sorts of loops um, to kind of justify the fact that what, in fact, they were setting up was a corporation that was buying and selling uh, pepper. So in order to do this, they said, oh, well, this was so that we can, you know, save the world for Christendom. Um, uh, Sort of a justification that reminds me of certain countries that didn't go into other countries for reasons of oil and then claim that they're saving them for democracy. Right. But um, it was a similar kind of justification, and they really believed it. Um, so each ship would have, you know, dozens of priests on board, um, many of which, interestingly enough, did rather well for themselves. One of the amazing things about these ships that went out from Lisbon was they were enormous, um, maybe a 1,000 people, um, 
in a space probably not much bigger than a McMansion. I did the, the math on this at one point. Thousands of people, and of course, most of the people were in these miserable little bunks, and about a quarter of the people had these relatively spacious quarters, where they ate rather well, it seems, in the first few months before everything rotted. ran out. Right. right. <laughs> so they would arrive in India with this, you know, mission. They built these enormous churches and so on and so on. When the Dutch moved in later on, they didn't have any of these hang-ups. They were in it for business and business only. They were Protestants, remember? Um, they didn't have any priests on board. They didn't have any of that stuff. So they were much more ruthless and much more efficient and were able to basically cut the Portuguese out of the market very, very rapidly. And we tend to forget that the Dutch had a huge empire at one point, but they did. Not only were they here in the United States, that was the West India Company, mm -hmm. the Dutch West India Company. They had possessions in Brazil. They had all of Indonesia and chunks of, um, chunk of the, what is now Sri Lanka. So the and that was the East India that because the, the, the Dutch India formed company. the Dutch East India right, Company, right. right? And it was all yeah. you know they were all in the case of the East India Company, it was all about cloves and pepper, and pretty much took over the 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 uh, spice trade of the world. They right? they totally did for a while, and they still you know they're still very active in it. Some of the mm. largest wholesalers of um, spices are still in Holland. Interesting. When, but England England came in at some point. England always managed to get in there. And, England and, <laughs> got their dirty little... <laughs> well, England... You know, one of the things about England was that England was a bit of a backwater until the 16th century. Um, very much kind of heavily influenced by French culture. Remember, they spoke mm -hmm. French until the 15th century. Mm -hmm. um, and they were sort of always in awe of French food and uh, still are, actually. Um, but... What happened was that they see, you know, the Dutch making money. They see the Portuguese making money. They see the Spanish, you know, going to New World um, where they don't find spices, but they do find things like gold, making lots of money. Um, and so they try to get in on it. And the East India Company, the so there was a Dutch East India Company, and then there was the British or the English East India Company. But the English, India East, uh, the English East India Company never quite managed to um, pull it off. Um, the Dutch were just a little too efficient, a little too good at what they did. Um, so in the end, they did start trading a little bit of pepper, but they never really traded the really, really valuable spices, which in those days were cinnamon, cloves, nutmeg. Yes, yes, indeed. I mean, you've, um, I did, for some, for people who are, are not really familiar with a lot of the roots, I did post, hopefully we will post on the website, a map of the spice roots. And that's debatable, too. I mean, that, and it changed over, sure, over sure. the centuries. Um, but at one point, I mean, it did span from Africa to Japan, and and the roots, as I say, kept kept changing depending on where they were going. But they did. Um, I know in in reading um, a lot about it, there were different roots that were named for the spices. Obviously, because those were the root, those were the spices they traded the most. So we, but the most popular were always the clove root and the cinnamon root. I mean, you know, pepper was a given. Sure, <laughs> because well, because cloves and cinnamon were just vastly more expensive. Pepper was cheap. Mm -hmm. You know, they used to use pepper in lieu of small change, you know, because there was a lot of, the, the, um, you didn't have enough um, 
metal in Europe in the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. And so you'd have gold coins, but, you know, a gold coin could buy you a castle. Uh, You had silver coins, and a silver coin could buy you a nice big shed. But if you just wanted to buy a, you know, a pumpkin, not a pumpkin, a gourd, they didn't have pumpkins. (laughs) Uh, If you wanted to buy a gourd, what would you pay for you know, what did you use as currency? Well, big people used salt as currency. That mm-hmm. was one thing that they used because it was standardized. And they used pepper because, again, it was standardized. You could count out 10 peppercorns and it'd be worth, you know, a nickel. Right. Um, so that pepper was used sort of as a currency. And there was a lot of it. And there was a lot of it was imported. And at a certain point, it wasn't prestigious at all. It was kind of a middle class thing. You know, if you were a self, any self-respecting bourgeois renaissance person could afford pepper. Um Cinnamon, no. Cinnamon was about five times the cost and um, quite quite prestigious, quite expensive. And incidentally, and I love telling this to people in the United States, most of the stuff that we call cinnamon isn't cinnamon. It is something called cassia. Cassia. There's canela and there's cassia. Right. And if you want real cinnamon, go to a Latin American store and ask for something called canela. Mm-hmm. Because that's the real thing. It's soft, it's pliable, and it has a much more aromatic and sweet um, quality. Not that the cassia is bad. No, no, but no, the, no, no, no. But the flavors. You're right. I mean, the flavors are different. Very different. You can, you can. Uh, cassia is hot. It's mm-hmm. like what makes red hot hot. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And and that's and now it's interesting because you know usually you go to buy McCormick's or whatever it is you know and you just get the standard. I just who incidentally are making cinnamon. it killing. Unbelievable, right? Right. Um, and where did that com- where did that company start? <laughs> I mean, they make so much. I sort of ran the numbers at one point because I was trying to say, well, you know, in the Middle Ages, this cost this much and this cost this much. Um, and then I just went to my local supermarket and bought a one of those jars of the fancy, the fancy grade of the McCormick uh-huh. which I think ran about it was about five or six dollars for I That's think right. an ounce and a half. And when you do the numbers on that per pound, and that's sort of what the English were paying in the Middle Ages. It's interesting. I think over the past 10 years, the cost of spices in today's market have have risen. People are more aware of where the spices come from, which are, you know, the the better variety of peppers. I mean, you can go to, let's say, in New York City, Calusians and and buy seven different varieties sure. of pepper and um you know whereas years past people were they just said, oh i need pepper or i need cinnamon didn't matter where it came from or what it was it was in a jar and you needed it and you bought it ginger um and now people are i think more aware of the spices and where they come from so they want the quality stuff and they're paying for it that's and, the, that, and it's driving the prices up of, of all the of all the types right. i think um, that's one thing that's happening, but the other thing that's happening, and this is huge, is that there is more spice being used in food, not by consumers, but by industry. And not only industry here, but in China, in India, where processed food, which didn't exist before, mm-hmm. to all intents and purposes, has now become a huge business. And of course, you know, you and I may use mace once every six months, Um the people who produce ketchup use mace day in and day out. And whether it's, you know, Heinz ketchup here or whether it's ketchup for the McDonald's in Beijing. Um, the giant industrial cans. <laughs> the giant industrial cans of mace are right. driving up the price of, you know, something obscure like mace. Right. Um, uh, I just lost my train of thought um, because you, you just reminded me of, of something else. Well, oh, and that was spice in... And we're, we've been talking all, always about spice in food, mm-hmm. spices used in food. And, of course, spices weren't 
only used in food. I mean, there there were a lot of other uses for spices. I mean, they were, um, you know, hygiene was not exactly one of the, uh, the, <laughs> the not at, to the levels that we know it today. I mean, right. snuff boxes and and there perfumes was, and and you know handkerchiefs and right. things. Um, and they were used medically, medically and medically, of course. And the funny thing about that was, if you look at these medieval sources, because medicine for the rich had to use expensive ingredients, whereas you know, sort of brand names, let's say, whereas the peasants got to use the generic stuff. The generic stuff in those cases was herbs and roots that grew locally for the rich it was the imported expensive stuff so you know if you uh, needed a little bit uh, sort of more action uh, the Viagra of the day was cloves Mm -hmm. Um, pepper was considered to be you know heating up the constitution and making more excitable and all this sort of stuff what's ironic about all this though is that now scientists have gone back to that and are looking at, you know, cinnamon. Well, cinnamon has in some cases been implicated um, in uh, late-onset diabetes studies that it seems to, I can't remember exactly the terminology, but it does something good. (laughs) Um, Similarly, pepper has been found to increase the efficacy of other drugs, Mm -hmm. so that if you eat the essential ingredient in pepper, which is something called piperine, it will seemingly improve your absorption of other drugs which is a huge thing, for example, if you're taking a, um, a cancer drug that has bad side effects, because theoretically, this has not been 100% proven, but they've been studying this. Theoretically, you could be able to take half of Half it. the amount, right. But don't go out and chew peppercorns, people. Don't we, chew we, peppercorns. We don't well, you can <laughs> chew peppercorns, but I mean, don't do it right, for medical purposes. Don't do purposes. it right, right. <laughs> and follow your doctor's orders, right? Um, it, it's interesting because... Um, it, there are in in homeopathic medicines and um, naturopathic um, medicines a lot of these well herbs of course have always had a big play in it and spices not as much and now and now we're seeing you know more of a return of a lot of spices in in some I, of those I think that's coming well. from um, local healers if you will mm-hmm, mm-hmm. adopting Ayurvedic practices because in Ayurveda and which is the sort of the age old Indian system Indian. of medicine um, spices are essential. Spices are, you know, what it's about. Mm-hmm. But coming back to cooking, of course, spices are essential too. I mean, it, who, as I said in the beginning of the show, you know, we take for granted the every what we call the everyday spices that we use, and it's hard to think of of cooking just about anything that we do on a daily basis without using a spice. It's true, but you know, it's funny because that changes from culture to culture, and even within the, you know the narrow con- confines of Europe. We're used to salt and pepper on the table, right? right. Salt, pepper, salt, pepper, right. salt, pepper, salt, pepper, salt, pepper, salt, pepper. I was talking to a Dutch guy who, when he was in the Dutch Navy, because the Dutch are obsessed with nutmeg, um, they had salt, pepper, nutmeg on the table. So nutmeg was, you know, they sprinkle nutmeg on everything. They put it on cauliflower. They put it on breakfast cereal. They put it in cakes. But they put it on a lot of savory foods as well. If you go to a place like Hungary, you'll have salt and paprika, <laughs> you know, which is a form of chili pepper. Mm-hmm. Um which is another one of those funny stories of like how the spice trade influence how people um, inadvertently influence how people eat around the world. Because the reason that chili peppers got to Africa, the reason that chili peppers got to India was because the Portuguese brought them with them, brought them with them <laughs> when they were going to get the black pepper. So they would go by way of Brazil, then around the Cape of Good Hope, 
um, eventually end up in India, pick up the pepper, black pepper, and then drop off the red pepper, the chili pepper. All right. right. And chili, that's a whole other, that's a whole a whole other, other topic of yeah. the dissemination of, of peppers around the world. And, and of course, a lot of the same goes for a lot of New World foods that went back. With the Portuguese in many cases, yeah. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Well, and food and cooking with spices is such a wonderful topic and a yummy um, uh, uh, pursuit. And I wanted to mention that you are going to be teaching some classes, three class series of three classes on cooking with spices at the Astor Center in, here in New York City. And that starts when? That starts in, I don't know the exact date. It's early November if you go to their website. Which yeah, is, if you look at Astor Center Wine's uh, website, you can find all their information on classes that's and right. things. Well, Michael, thank you so much for sharing a little slice of spice history. As I said, it is a huge topic, and I think it was it – was, uh, very good of you to try to condense it into something that was very readable for the common um, person who wants to know more well, about culinary so history. Thank you so much, Linda. Yeah. It was a pleasure. And I hope that everyone will join us again when we talk about culinary history on A Taste of the Past. Mm-hmm.